right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hot Plates and Grapes podcast. My name is Aaron Mays, and I have him here with me, my OG. When I first got to the city, took me under his wing, and ever since then, I've been taking off. My boy, Charlie Reyes of Audio Culture, LLC, founder and the man with the plan, best playlist in any restaurant in New York City. If their playlist is in the restaurant, it's fire, especially Charlie Bird, Squalid Jones, and what used to be Legacy Records. So I want to start off, man. First, by mentioning this this red we got. It's a breakfast. You know, it's a, it's an early morning style. Yeah, it looks tasty. Greek Nola Diasti. Parcel hooked it up again. Much love. Shout out to the Parcel team. Yeah, much love. Everybody holding it down since episode one. <laughs> so I'm going to get this open. I'm going to ask you first, yo, like, how you doing, man? What's going on? Like, I know we've chatted over the time, but, like, like how are you really doing, man? Like, how's the fam? Um, I don't know. It's... It's super weird to talk about or catch up with friends, I guess, at this point um, when you're when you're um, reaching out or getting reacquainted. And, you know, obviously the first question is, how have you been? You know, um, like everybody else, uh, COVID, COVID really affected my life professionally and personally. Uh, I've been out of work since March. Um, and uh, as far as professionally speaking, I'm, I'm genuinely still kind of terrified to go back. I mean, like, we could probably sit here and do a whole podcast about the pros and cons going back to work right now, right? Yeah, for real. But the fact of the matter is the logistics of it all um, for the health of my family, for my personal health, and even financially. I mean, um, it's kind of sad to look at the world and, and take inventory and realize that it's it's uh, medically and fiscally more responsible right now to stay within the four walls of your house than to go out and, and try and, and, and work, you know? Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we you know, but I also think that it's it's like for me, I, I use it as a time of like reflection. Um, I read something during the course of quarantine that I found really interesting. And it was that there have been studies that have been performed on people that are basically going stir crazy at home because they can't go to work. Right. Mm. I, I come from a family that put work over everything. Right. Yeah. Um, it's it's how we put food on the table. It's how we put clothes on the backs of our families. It's how we keep a roof over our head, right? Up until this this moment here, where I'm unemployed for seven months now, I don't. I've never stopped working. I'm 41 years old, right? Shit. Um, that's and a, that's, a, that's a whole lot. It's a lot, right? And um, for me, it's like I didn't realize how much of my life I gave to my job. And for a lot of us in hospitality specifically, that's what we do, man. It's why a lot of us have failed relationships, yeah. substance abuse problems, yeah. uh, emotional distress. It's why a lot of us are out drinking till three in the morning, <laughs> like five, eating pizza at five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, quarantine has kind of helped me reset my train of thought, uh, my approach to life. I, I've really learned to understand what self care means. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, I've I've taken the time that I've had at home and really repaired relationships with my family, evolved them, which I think was important yeah. for me personally. Um, and now I just basically just try to find new ways to keep my sanity. Um, I think that that right now is probably harder than anything Yeah. because the worker in me, the ethic, the, the work ethic I've had my whole life, it, it drives me crazy, right? I want to. I I have that or that itch. Like I I itch to bar to ten bar. Yeah. I, I miss it, but I'm I'm conscious enough, uh, mature enough w with myself, to be honest and say that what I loved most about bartending 
was the random the random acts that happened when I got behind the bar, the yeah. spontaneity of human contact, right? That we provide services, you know, some tangible, most not tangible to our guests. Um, but it's that human interaction that really feeds what we do. And I, we can't have that. Like bartenders specifically, we can't have that right now because nah. of the way indoor dining is rolling out. There's no bar seats. There's no connection. There's anymore. no connection. So yeah. why would I take a job to go and be a service bartender? There's nothing wrong with that. Just, like, just to crank out drinks props, and stand in a, in a corner. To, yeah, props yeah. to my bros who are out there doing that because yeah. I've got a handful of them that are, you know. Yeah. But that's that's not what I loved about what we did. And if it comes down to satisfaction for creativity and construction, I, I've got the ingredients at home. Like, I'll build me a proper Negroni. I'll build me a yeah. proper old-fashioned. Yeah, like, I had to get down to that. I had to get my Antica. I had to get, I had to get the works just to make myself a proper one. But I still kind of miss just the, the craftsmanship of the, that cocktail bar. Like, going to a bar, let me get a Negroni, and just watching, you know, the finesse with the, I with miss, the swizzle. I miss all of that, man. You know? It's but, crazy. But none of that none of that is worth the risk of getting my family sick. Yeah. So as many protocols as they might put in to try and protect all of you, all it takes is one, you know? And for me, that's just the one that I can't risk. And I, you know, kind of just, just wrapping up that train of thought, like, how am I? I guess I'm, I guess I'm good. Um, like, <laughs> You're looking good, man. That's, thank what, you. that's for sure. Like, like every other New Yorker, I'm, I'm or, I, you know, that's even selfish to say, I guess like everyone else in, in the world, I have a bunch of stuff on my mind as to what happens next. Yeah. Um, but we adapt, right? That's yeah. what that's what we do here in New York, specifically. I can't speak to the rest of, about the rest of the country because I didn't grow up there. But here we thrive. We yeah. survive. We've been through crazy shit. Yeah. You know, even before, even before anything happened here, like even before I existed here. Yeah, of course. There yeah. have been people here, you know, thriving in the face of adversity, and and evolving and making New York and New Yorkers better. So you know. I'm, I'm concerned, but I'm healthy and I'm hopeful, I guess, is probably the best way to answer it. Cheers to that, my brother. Thank you. Yes, sir. That's nice. That's good for the time? Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, my man, my man, my man Ben knew what he was talking about. When I was a kid, the first time I'd ever heard Francesco Rinaldi was the uh, tomato sauces. (laughs) That's why when I first saw the bottle, I was like, that looks... Slightly familiar, but I'm not gonna make that I connection. Can't, you know, in the I wine don't shop. even know, like, and if and if <laughs> I'm and not gonna if, walk into a wine shop and mention that. Well, no, and if I'm completely <laughs> off and they're not related or affiliated in any way, then apologies. But like, I vividly remember being a kid, right, and the first time moms brought home like the Francesco Rinaldi jar, like jars of tomato sauce. Yeah. I was like, yo, we came up. <laughs> Like, this is no more of that ragu shit. Like, we got Francesco Rinaldi in this motherfucker. Like, I don't even know who that dude is, but he sounds important. Yeah, that sounds like a beast. Yo, he sounds he's like he knows it. what he's doing, yeah, right? Yeah, See, hey, we made it. We yeah. came up. Now we're drinking Francesco Rinaldi yeah. out of the glass. Little did we know, right? Yeah. <laughs> On the come up. Yeah, so you mentioned your first job. You worked, like, mad early. But you weren't really hospitality to start. But no. your first hospitality job was at McDonald's, 17. You started in the back of house. Then you eventually worked up to more corporate establishments like Cheesecake Factory. Uh, you mentioned Dave & Buster's, which was your transition into the front of house. Uh, so you spent time in upstate New York and Rhode Island, and then you came back to the city and took on some powerhouses. Like one to establish really is, um, like, please don't tell, like legend, legendary speakeasy bar to working at Charlie Bird with Robert Bohr, then Chef Ryan Hardy, even Grant Reynolds, then Arbit Rosengrins that came through. Then you opened up Pasquale Jones, uh, Legacy Records, and even Ada's Place, head bartender at both of those establishments. And then for your work for your music playlist, you've been interviewed numerous times 
all the different podcasts, and even been featured in GQ, Masters in Dynamic, The Observer, Bento Box, and even The Wall Street Journal. Like, what the fuck, man? And the most unknown accolade that you have, you're a level two sommelier. Yeah. So you got all this, you pretty much have this whole, you've done pretty much everything in the industry. I'm a, you probably were a polisher at one point, too. <laughs> and so you being born and raised in Harlem on 123rd and Lexington. How did you get to hospitality? Were your parents involved in hospitality at all? What what influence did you ever want to be in hospitality to begin with? Talk to me about that. Um, well, I mean, I think the first thing, the first answer that is most relevant to this question is I had I had no desire or intention to be in hospitality. Um, you know, to be completely honest, it's something that I fell into because I at the time that I started doing it, I needed a job, right? But you know, you, you look back and you reflect and. Um, I can't say with certainty if it was a conversation that I had with a friend or if I read it somewhere, but there's a train of thought that it wasn't my original idea. Someone else, you know, shared it with me and it resonates with me. And that is that when you grow up in Latinx culture, you are trained to be hospitality professionals before basically when you're born. And if I, if I can expand on that, I, I know I've got cousins that can testify to this, but in our households, when your uncles or aunts came through, when your grandma came through, when your when your parents' friends came through, it didn't matter what you were doing, right? You dropped what you were doing. You went to the living room. You said hello to everybody. Everybody got a kiss on the cheek, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody got a kiss on the cheek. You, right. you did very short conversation. And then your job was to offer a drink, a glass of water. You know, if the hors d'oeuvres, if it was a party, the hors d'oeuvres were running out. You were handing out hors d'oeuvres. You were picking up jackets if it was the winter. Running them to the bedroom for yo, this is all facts. Man, this is on coach. This is all facts. Vamos aquí. And let me tell you, man, if it was in my house, I was working full time. Yeah, I might as well have been in that tip pool. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, mom, where's my cash? She's yo, like, mom, nah. where's my tip out? <laughs> yeah. You know, I just I just pulled ten hours. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even get a lunch break. You know. Um. So you know, I, I was I was taught to take care of people from junk. Yeah. Right. It's the way that I was raised in my house. Um, I had a very, very unique experience in school when I was a kid. Um, I went from the best to the worst and back to the best, and I graduated high school when I was 16, right? Damn. And I didn't, and because it happened so overnight for me, I didn't have a chance to react or respond as to what career path my life was going to take, right? Um, so my mother, being the proactive totalitarian that she is, in, um, applied to colleges for me. And she got me into a program, the only one that would take me because I had applied so late in the year, yeah. uh, into a state school upstate New York, right, um, into the computer information systems. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with being a computer programmer. Those dudes rule the world, right? Literally. But it's not for me. Like, <laughs> while I might have the mental capacity to do it, I didn't see myself being chained to a computer 10 to 12 hours a day like like we've spoken about. Like, I need social interaction, Yeah. you know? Right. Um, so I failed out. I failed out my first semester, um, which didn't go well with the family. And instead of coming home and facing the music, I thought that I'd be proud and powerful. And I was like, I'm just going to stay up here and work and let you guys figure it out, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I try to, like, get this job. In, I try to get a job in some, you know, in a, in a town in upstate New York called Morrisville. I went to SUNY Morrisville for, for a year. Okay. And um, the only job I could get was at a McDonald's. You know, seven, I was... Barely, I was barely 17, almost 18. Yeah. Couldn't get a job nowhere. And they hired me. And, you know, it was an experience. Like, uh, it's it's not hard to, 
learn the mechanics, it's super hard to deal with the people. Yeah. Um, I got I got let go really early. I hated my job, and it what didn't take me didn't take my friends much to convince me to do things that would get me fired. Um, like I got fired for uh, for stealing a case of quarter pounders um, from McDonald's. I mean, I I mean, I kind of probably. Did the same I mean, I, I was feeding the. That's a way to go out. I was feeding me and my roommates, you know. So yeah. you know, taken from the rich and given to the poor, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then because of my experience at McDonald's, I got a job as um as like a short order cook, more as a dishwasher, in like the town diner, and that was my first experience really working in the kitchen, um, and I liked it. I enjoyed it, right? It was fun. I hung out with the guys, made some food. Yeah. Didn't seem like anything crazy. So when I eventually came home and I had to face the music, you know, my parents weren't really about putting me into anything. Like, their resolution was, you know, you fucked up, you figure it out. Um, my response was I moved. I left. I left New York again. Um, I left New York City again. This time I went to Rhode Island, um, which is where I had family. And... At the time, my stepfather was working out there. This was in late nine, 19, late the late 90s, early 2000. Um, the time. real estate bubble was just starting to bubble up. Yes. So so while um, while I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life, my, my dad took me up there with him, right? Um, and I started to work with him. And my stepdad um, was I – don't, I don't really use the word step. Uh, my father was my father, you know, and that's not discrediting my, my father, but – they both have very important roles in my life, right? So my father, Wilson, um, I'll never forget this. One day he took me. We went to work, right? And we were working on a house that at that point we had ripped the roof off. So it was just open air, right? Yeah. So it's open air in New England in late November. And I'm 17 years old. And I'm standing on the third floor with no roof over my head, pulling nails out of the frame of the house. You know, that was my work. That's what I was doing for work at 17. Mm. And I'm bright as fuck. I just don't know what to do with my life, right? Yeah. And my dad comes up with tears in his eyes, and he takes the hammer out of my hand, and he says, go home, like, to my aunt's house. And I asked him what I did wrong. I thought that I had done something wrong, like, work ethic, right? And all he said was, like, I, I don't do this so that you do this. You know? It's that, that, that father mentality. You know, you're going to put yourself... You're going to put yourself through everything so your kids don't have to, right? Yeah. My aunt, my Aunt Rosa, who still lives in Florida, um, on my, mother, my aunt on my mother's side, we were living in her house. And Providence, Rhode Island, is the home for Johnson & Wales University. Yeah. Um, you know, and Johnson & Wales was a trade, a trade university specializing in food and service management, culinary skills. That was on the come up because at that time, it was the advent of the Food Network. Emerald Lagasse was everywhere, just like, bam! You know what I mean? It was like a t-shirt, yeah. you know? <laughs> so overnight, people like Emerald gave a new shine, a new luster to what people were doing in hospitality. All of a sudden, it wasn't an afterthought or a joke of a job to be a chef or even a line cook. There was an allure. There was a popularity. There was a certain notoriety, a coolness to it, right? Um, and that shit attracted me yeah. because... New York kids, Harlem kids, we're all about that shine. I went to my aunt. I, I, my aunt helped me set up a a open uh, open school visit. Uh, she helped me set my transcripts. I took the test. They took me. I filed for financial aid on my own. Took out my own loans. They took me right, and I, that's how I started in school. And to kind of pay my way through those little like experience jobs at the diner and McDonald's, 
started getting me in the kitchens in Providence. Mm. Um, and that's that's how I got into it. It became something that I, I started to do because I thought it was cool and I kind of fell in love with it in the process. Um, my career took a really crazy turn because I went into hospitality thinking I was going to be a chef. Yeah. And now I'm a star tender and I have my own music business, you know. Um, when did you know that you were solidified in the industry? When did you feel like, what, what, what was the moment that you were like, we depend on Charlie. Like, Charlie's the guy. When he clocks in, it's different. Like, what was that turning point for your career when you knew you made it? The thing about this industry is that you, when you get to a manager level, you have to manage, you know, personalities, egos, um, how you're going to motivate your staff. There are a lot of people that will tell you that they have a personal experience where a leader of theirs or a manager of theirs told them, hey, A, B, and C, and, you know, this is why you're important. Um, I think that a lot of that shit is corporately structured. Um, in my experience, a lot of people will tell you how great you are and then cut you loose at the drop of a dime, right? Um, and that had to happen to me a lot. Yeah. You know, I have, uh, growing up the way that I did, one of the things that I was taught was loyalty, Right. I understand it to a fault. Um, I've been, I've been on a lot of sinking ships, personal relationships and professional relationships. Right, the first half of my career, mostly when I was in Rhode Island, I got taken advantage of. Yeah, there are a lot of people who took advantage. Like I wasn't naive. Well, you know what? I, I've I've always considered myself to be genuinely street street smart, but learning how to deal with people in the business world when you don't have that type of experience behind you, is not easy. You know, my parents didn't didn't deal with it. I didn't really have any experience, and I and I definitely got taken advantage of. Was I a model uh, employee? Absolutely not. You know, like I did I did I did dumb shit. I was young, you know. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it warranted for some of the treatment that I got either, especially when I was in Rhode Island. But all all those experiences, man, they they made me not not want to be here in doing what we do, right? It, it it honestly and when I first came to New York, I, I I went into restaurants out of necessity because it's all I knew, right? And the messed up thing about New York hospitality is that as as open as it is and as fun as it is to be in, it's really hard to get into. No, for sure. Um, yeah, man. I'm, I'm not I sure. I had to fight to be a server. I'm not sure what the parameters are now, but in 2012 when I was trying to get a job. Any place of reputation had this this asterisk in their in their application process. Do you have two to three years of New York City dining experience? No, that's, that's still a thing. It's well, I want to reflect back now because I've worked in New York almost nine years, and if you're if you're humbly, if if you're asking me if I've dealt if if I've dealt with asshole people in my life before, then you don't need to live in New York or work in New York. To experience that, right? Yeah. There are there are people that are idolized in this city by hospitality professionals. Danny Meyer is one of them, right? For better or worse. And one of his train of thoughts is that the most effective hospitality professionals are 51 percenters, right? And what that train of thought of his means or breaks down to is that, you know, fundamentally anyone can be trained to take an order with a pen and a pad or, yeah. you know, become knowledgeable about food or wine or you know, what things pair or, you know what I mean? Anybody with simple math skills or organizational skills really can control the floor, right? It's about how much of yourself 
you put into what you do that separates the true pros from people that are, you know, waiting tables until they figure something else out. Yeah. Right. Um, and you, you can't teach that. So how how do you quantify those two to three years of New York experience? Right. And it was an obstacle that like, bro, like, I work hard. I'm hungry and I might not know a lot of things, but I know that I'm intelligent and you can teach me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So teach me, teach me and give me a chance to show you that I can do this and I'll do this. Right. Yeah. My first job here, I got a job through a really good friend at the time at a space called Seasonal. Right. It was an Austrian. Um, it was an Austrian tasting space that was operating in the theater district on 58th between 7th and 8th. Right. Yeah. So basically right across from Trump Tower. Straight 100% like, you know, theater district crowd, right? Yeah, I flipped that building off a couple times. And I had this, I had this like moment in my life. It's, it's, like a, it's like a TV movie moment where, you know, I had gotten tickets for a quality show, live band in Brooklyn. That's, that's, that's was what, it at Broward Park by chance? Um, it was at the Green Space. Okay. Um, fucking, that's, what, that's a big vibe for me, yeah. you know? Um, Talib with a live band, like that's, 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 that's important to me, you know? It's important. That's, that's important. To That'd like, be important to me today. That's important to America. Um, like, and I made these plans. I bought the tickets. I asked my manager, "Sure, Charlie, no problem. You got the night off. The week of the concert comes up, right? And the concert is a Wednesday. I'll never forget this. I had I had originally had the day off, and then I was supposed to work. Uh, I think that Thursday for sure. And then at this point, I was struggling because they had put me on an on call two shifts a week, right? Mm. And they hadn't. And I couldn't, they wouldn't allow me to get a full-time job anywhere else. Um, they wouldn't allow you to. No, they were like, well, we need you. If, we, if we need you on a whim for a shift, we can't have you say no. The day before the show, I get a call from my manager, and she basically insists that I have to work. And when I ask why, she, she didn't even sugarcoat it. The only other person who could have worked that night was a dining room manager who was already working six nights a week, right? So they've put it on me. So, dude, again... I'm feeling loyal. I'm feeling like I got to prove myself. I go to work. I give up my tickets, go to work, do the shift. The end of the night that night, I'm going to leave, right? And I say, or does, the manager on the floor, her name is Celia. And um, I say, hey, Celia, I'll, you know, I'll see you tomorrow or Friday, whatever day it was that I was supposed to work. And she's like, actually, Charlie, she's like, um, Wolfgang told me to tell you that you're actually all set for the week. I said, excuse me? I'm supposed to work. Again, I, I was one or two shifts again that week. And her response was, well, Wolfgang feels like Dragan might be better suited to take care of those of those nights. So we're going to let him work. And, you know, you can just come back next week. I went home crying that night, dude, because um, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Like to the point where I called my family and I said, Mom, I, I can't do this. I know I made promises. I know that I'm supposed to be, you know, think more level headed and not be as reactionary as I've been traditionally in my life. But get on the train trying to figure out what to do in my life. We go underground. We come back up. Now we'll come back up. When we come back up, we're in the Bronx, and um, I'm near my house. My phone goes off, and there's two alerts. There's an email, and there's a text, right? I can't make these moments up in my life that, that pivot me sometimes. Yeah. The text message is from my manager. Hey, Charlie, sorry to bother. We spoke to Dragon, and he actually can't work this weekend. We actually need you to work your shifts, right? And the email is from a lady named Shinseng, Shinsung, excuse me. Shinseng, who was the opening general manager of a new restaurant in the West Village called Charlie Bird. And she had responded to my resume that I had sent in through Craigslist. Craigslist, bro, is how I ended up at Charlie Bird. I mean, people 
got a legacy through Craigslist. Craig's it's um, it's a list, bro. It's a, it's a thing. It's, it's a vibe. A, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and she was interested in knowing if I could come in for an interview much sooner than later because the training was starting the following week. She wanted to see me the next day. Right. So I get home, and my mom is notorious for sage-like advice at the weirdest times. And I, I explained to her everything I just explained to you. And I say, what do I do? And she says, if you go to work tomorrow, are you going to come home and still be miserable? I said, yeah. I hate it there. Yeah. She's like, well, she's like, I know that I told you that you need to wait. But if you're really not happy, you know, we're your family. We'll figure it out. Go to the interview. And hopefully you get the job. And maybe you'll go one week without a check or two. But you'll be happier. Yeah. You know, Charlie Bird and my experience there is what really made me finally love and appreciate what what we do Um, for multiple reasons. On top of the fact that it was the first space that really proactively taught its employees, but encouraged them to take steps further and learn more. Um, But it was also another space where a fellow minority and a woman gave me an opportunity no one else would, you know, and and I ran with it. Um, I was blown away by, by things we were learning at training. It's like I didn't know about the, the differences in olive oil or the the exponential difference between a fresh and a canned anchovy. I didn't know what a squash blossom was or yeah, yeah. how to process chicken livers. Or, it's a neonata. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, exactly. Like, what yeah. do you mean it's a Calabrian chili? Like, what what is that? What's the difference? Like, what's the what are you showing me? And and on top of the fact that all of these things were new to me, it, it, made, it made me realize that as much as I thought that I knew, I, I didn't know shit. Yeah. You know? My whole experience at Rhode, in Rhode Island was corporate. So everything that I learned in terms of food was whitewashed. Right. Normalized, generalized, you know, Americanized. Made, made palatable for suburban right. America. Yeah. Right. And in terms of the cocktail programs, and this is I'm not trying to knock anyone, but there was no there were no real cocktail bars in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. I think the Decatur was probably the only spot and it was great. Like that was that was like that was like my first PDT esque experience. It was yeah. dark. You get a proper <laughs> old fashioned. Yeah. There were all kinds of tattooed, pierced people listening to funky hip hop. It was like yeah. It was like a little like niche of what home is for me. Yeah. I loved that experience. It made me fast. It made me organized. It gave me a lot of the tools that I would in turn turn around and apply at a busy bar in a restaurant. Yeah. You know, so it was definitely formative. Um, but that's kind of how I like I landed in hospitality, man. It was a lot of a lot of trial and error, a lot of like a lot of, you know, broken hearts, broken promises. You know, fortunately for me, when I landed in at Charlie Bird, I landed with a group of peeps that valued me. You know, was it perfect all the time? Absolutely not. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, if the people that you work with make you feel like like you're appreciated, someone like me will walk through a wall for you. Yeah. You know, but like I was a dishwasher. Um, I had plates Damn. thrown at my head. That's wild. I, I had, had, that. I had the hot sizzle plates thrown at me in the first kitchen that I worked. Um, I had my, my family insulted for dropping plates behind the line. Uh, I've been called a fat waste of space by chefs. So it brings to that point since you're saying that Charlie Bird pretty much was like your turning point. That was like, okay, I'm here. I'm at a place of embracement. 
you're climbing up the ranks. You're getting to where you need to go. Bartending now at at Charlie Bird. Um, you've even gotten to like your sommelier classes and all that good stuff. Um, what was your first big time restaurant experience? Like dining out. You as a VIP. You mentioned a, a great one. I think we need to touch back on that okay. again. The one experience that always resonates with me um, in New York was my, my experience at the Nomad Hotel. Yeah. Um, in 2015, when I had um, – it was my second, my second full winter, I think. Uh, 2014, excuse me. It was my second full winter here in New York, right? And I was a year into working at Charlie Bird, and – one of the things that I, I was trying to do at the time to make things better was to kind of go out with my family and show them the New York dining experience that I was starting to, you know, not only be a part of um, because I was selling it, but I also appreciated it. I understood the nuance of what it took to build those type of experiences. And I wanted them to see that because coming from where I'm from, I know with a thousand percent certainty if I don't take my mom to the Nomad, she's not going. No one's going to take her. Right. <laughs> it's not what we do in our culture. Yeah. You know? So my mom's birthday's in December, and um, I want to take her somewhere nice, right? So I start asking the team at the bird when we're on the floor, yo, man, like, you know, I don't want to bring her here. We've, all, we've already come here. Right, yeah. Where do, I, where do I take my mom for a crazy birthday holiday season? And the Nomad Hotel comes up, right? Um, oh, it's phenomenal. Got to get the herb rub chicken, you know, definitely get the charcuterie board. Like, everything's amazing, blah, 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 blah. I might as well have been trying to plan dinner on the moon. <laughs> um, it was nigh impossible. Uh, Shin reached out for me. Mike Gray reached out for me. Grant reached out to his friends because I couldn't get a reservation on my own. I couldn't. Like, they were basically booked through the month. So that <laughs> conversation that Grant and I are having reaches the ears of a mutual friend um, who who – uh, knew us both, and they actually reached out to me after the fact, and they said, "Hey, Charlie, I heard that um, you know you were trying to uh, make this happen, you know, for your family. What's the deal?" And so I explained it to them, and uh, they say, "Okay, well, um, let me see if I can reach out to someone, and let me see what I can do." Right. So they they reach out, and lo and behold, they get a hold of me a couple of days later, and they say, "Hey, man, like, but I actually got you a reservation on the same day, but I got it for you at seven o'clock. Is that gonna work?" Fuck yeah, it's prime gonna, time. Yeah, absolutely, it's gonna work. What do you mean seven o'clock's gonna work? No, let me think about it. <laughs> nah, <laughs> totally works. Yo, no worries, absolutely. Thank you so much. I yeah. appreciate it. You don't have to do that. Oh, Charlie, don't worry about it. You know, downplaying, downplaying the favor, right? No, not a big deal. So you know, you do your research, and you know, um, the nomad can get pricey. I mean, there, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. You're paying for the for the experience, mm -hmm. right? So I had I had guesstimated and saved that if I wanted to all out ball, you know, order in like top bottles and crazy stuff after the fact, I was going to have to save at least $1,000 to be able to pay the bill and tip appropriately. Right. And I did that. Like I had, I had a chunk of money put aside during the holiday season specifically for this meal, right? Like the night of the dinner comes and they're dressed in the nines. Like they might as well have been in Sunday church clothes. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Yeah. You know, nice dress. And my mom is, is super happy, you know? We, we had never done anything like that as a family. Um. Go out somewhere nice, the three of us. And so we get to the front. Hey, my name's Charlie. You know, oh, Mr. Reyes. Yes, your 7 o'clock reservation. Um, just give us a moment. We actually have a captain's table that we've put aside for you right in the middle of the dining room by the fireplace. Um, you know, we, we pick that table for you. We hope it's great. 
Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to put me in the kitchen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck, man. Like, that's that's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bro, we get to the table. The sommelier comes over and they bring over one of these exclusive bottles. And he say to me, this is on behalf of the uh, of us here at the Nomad. We wanted to welcome you. We, wanted, uh, we know who you are, where you work, what you do. And, you know, welcome. Because you know, Charlie was still relatively new. Yeah. They say, uh, you know, welcome. If there's anything we can do, blah, 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 blah. Bro, my mom was blown the fuck away. Right? Who who are these people? How do they know you? What have you done to them? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Are you selling drugs? Yeah. Are you, are you doing that again? Yeah. Because we talked about that. Like, yeah. that's why you came home. Yeah. So that you didn't do that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Um, phenomenal meal, you know, by the end of the first course, my mom and my sister are smacked because they don't drink. Right. So we've put the, the Krug down. We put a bottle of Rudy Peekler down. So, you know, they Corvan glasses at, at the Nomad. I started yeah. drinking crazy wines with my meal. I'm drinking 25 years scotch for dessert. Yeah. Just having a phenomenal time. Right? Yeah. So we get to the end of the meal and I asked the server who is now a friend to please bring me the check. Right. And they say that the check has been taken care of and that they are not allowed to drop anything on me. And they let me know that the the friend of Grant and mine who went out of their way to make the reservation has also turned around and taken care of the bill, right? It was a big bill. Yeah. I, I, I was, you know... You were ready to, to swipe. Yeah. So you were ordering I, to swipe. Yeah. I, I then wasn't, got it getting I, nothing. You were like, what? I wasn't shy yeah. about what I was ordering because I knew what I was going to pay and I wanted that experience. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to pay. I had to insist for like 45 minutes until they finally, until I finally asked for an espresso. And then when they brought me another espresso, I'm like, please charge me for this yeah. so that I can fucking tip you. Yeah. Um, blown away. Blown away by the experience. They made me, they made, it wasn't even about me because I go out to eat all the time in New York now. It's, it's, yeah. it's research and development for what we do, right? It was the collection of the experience as a whole. It was the thoughtfulness of, of this person, of the group that he reached out to, of what they did. Because you can tell people at another restaurant that your friends, yeah, yeah, take care of them. And how many times have you heard that in a manager's meeting, like, oh, yeah, yeah just send them a dessert, whatever. It's an afterthought, right? And, and and again, I'm not. There are plenty of people that don't do that, but a lot of times in the mix of it all, there are a lot of managers or people who make decisions that just brush shit off like that to keep it moving. Yeah. How does it compare to your childhood? You said it's never happened. Like you've reached this pinnacle. You've had this experience. Like you were led into the secret society that is finer dining. Like when I was a kid, and like New lifelong New Yorkers will resonate with some of the things I'm about to say. Um. You know, I grew up in Spanish Harlem. We never went to eat south of 86th Street. We just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when 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 we were kids and my pop wanted to take us out to somewhere nice, we we used to always go to this place on 86 between Lexington and 3rd called Flaming Embers, right? Flaming Embers was basically like a steakhouse. It wasn't anything crazy. It was like 9.99 I think for like a for like a sirloin or whatever. Ooh. It was super cheap. Interesting. It, um, it was trays. You walked. It was basically like you order your steak, and then you walk down like a lunch line of sides with a tray. You ordered shit, and then when you got to the end, you paid for your food. You sat down, and they would eventually bring you your steak. Right. That was the epitome. That was like the pinnacle of dining for me when I, when I was a kid. Yeah. 
Um, we went to I, uh, my family is from Ecuador, right? In the Bronx, we had a legendary restaurant called Lucho Barrio, which was named after um, uh, a very popular folk singer um, from my country. And that was that, uh, that that too was probably the height of fine dining. Like yeah. we didn't do Peter Luger's, Smith and Walensky's. On super super special occasions, we would go to City Island. Oh me! Oh dude, I have City Island stories. Like yeah, that's what. Yeah. So oh, fuck yeah. So you know, growing up the way that I did, you know, f- dining experiences weren't necessarily something that we went out to do. And when we did, as celebratory as it might have been. It was very limited in the scope of exposure yeah. to culture or foods, especially now looking back as a hospitality professional. All right, word. So that kind of leads me to my my next question or my next like, segment here. Um, I'm more curious about the audio culture LLC and the creation of that. Like, I, I know a, a decent portion of how it was created, and the, the kind of like the the original story I've heard a million times from like Chef, from from you from you yourself. But it's really important for them to know because the playlists are very important. I find in the dining experience. So when making Audio Culture LLC, when they were passed off the responsibility to you, uh, they, have, don't have, they don't have enough time to make a playlist that's hip-hop-centric, that they enjoyed, but also give attention to the restaurant. So starting off the brand then into doing it now in a COVID environment, how, how has your vision started and how did it change? You know, I, I would be lying if I said that I had a vision for it. You know, in conversations uh, predominantly with Robert, because Robert was on the floor um, more than Chef. Obviously, Chef was running the kitchen. You know, when I when we look back and we talk about the good times and, and what we did as a group, um, Robert is very transparent, and in turn, I feel I have to be as well when we talk about music. The original concept of playing hip-hop in the space of Charlie Bird was borderline selfish and very personal for Robert. He knew that he was going to be in the space for 12 hours at a minimum a day, and for those of you who do not know Robert Bohr, he's a he's a phenomenal dude that grew up in Jersey and bleeds hip hop. But you know, Robert talks about how he wanted to listen to hip hop because he didn't want to hear any bullshit ass music, you know, within his space um while he was working. You know, so hip hop was the default, you know. Um and that's how it started. Chef Chef Robert uh Chef Robert, Chef and Robert, both again Chef Chef Ryan also Huge hip-hop head, bro. One of the first conversations that I remember vividly where I bonded with Chef Ryan was we were in the kitchen at Charlie Bird talking about Kuali and Kuali concerts. And he had been to some outdoor festival out in the West where he'd seen Kuali. And, like, you know, when you when you both stand over an artist and you guys have that moment where, you know, like, I fuck with that dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before I even became friends with these guys that I was working with, I was bonded on that level of music, right? So... They basically had two playlists that we listened to over and over, and they got tired really quickly. Yeah, of course. Um, before, when I was working in those corporate environments, all that we did was listen to those you know, radio stations that streamed over their corporate PA systems. And, and or business or uh, like the whatever cloud. Trash, bro. Yeah, whatever Just cloud trash. system you're using. It's fucking annoying. Um, and so I didn't have – it's not like I thought about, oh, man, maybe they'll give me – maybe I can do music and they'll give me and they'll let me do it, right? I had no ambition to do that. I was just a loudmouth, outspoken dude that worked on the floor and felt comfortable talking to Robert as a friend. And even then, I never went to him and said, we should change the music. How, As much as I loved and respected the dude, I feared him because 
I didn't have that. Rightfully so, though. I didn't have that personal relationship with him yet, and I was terrified to overstep my bounds as an employee, you know? But what we always did do is talk about the music itself. So he would play, you know, a J song or whatever, and if I wasn't talking to him, I would always catch him listening to me talking to somebody else about that song, the sample, first time I heard that sample, what the B-side was on the single when it came out. Yeah. Where I was the first time I bought that album, uh, how I thought the remix that featured this artist but wasn't around anywhere was better, nerding out on music. And it was Robert, actually, who came to me one day and he said, Charlie, he says, listen, he's like, I'm kind of getting tired of the music. I know that you guys are, too. I don't have the time to put music together, you know, on a list. He's like, I we basically have these two that we play all the time. Um, and then other than that, we were doing like radio stations, but ra you can't rely on a radio station, right? No. So he says, why don't you go home? He's like, do you have an iPad? I was like, I have an iTouch. You know? He says, go home, use your iTouch. He's like, do you have a bunch of music you can put in? I'm like, hell yeah, I've been collecting music my whole life. Put a bunch of music on it, bring it in. If you, um, if it works, we'll play your music and then we'll figure it out in the long run. And that was, that was how audio culture started was... It was Robert realizing that he didn't have the time to give the attention to that detail of his space that he wanted to matter because it was it was them that wanted music to matter. I just love that it did. It wasn't my vision. It was theirs, right? Um, and that was that was the beginning of it. It it bubbled. One of the best things about my relationship professionally between Audio Culture and Delicious is that they loved that I my 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 ambition, but they also had patience to let me work through it. And what I mean by that is we were doing something that wasn't really done before. We didn't invent the wheel, but we put a really nice spinner on it. Um, it <laughs> mother was sitting on dubs. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't the first space to play music loudly. We definitely weren't the first space to play hip-hop loudly, right? Especially within the confines of New York City. But were we the first space that was carrying Zalto glasses, selling Grand Cru Burgundy with Aesop soap in the in the bathroom, um, dry aged steak and homemade pastas in the kitchen, and and you know, all of these crazy details that you would only find in the you know the 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 really the really nice restaurants. Yeah. The you know, um, we were doing all that, and then we were playing hip hop really loudly, right? Yeah. And, and that was their thing. And they were smart enough to see that I loved hip-hop. And they gave me the patience to figure out how to play it. Um, you know, we learned a lot of lessons uh, the hard way along the way. From the, the difference between a track that was never digitally redone. So that it's a lot clearer on a streaming app. Right, right. It wasn't converted into... The the, uh, the hi-fi. Right. Uh, it wasn't really mastered. It, was, it still sounded very monotone. Sound, right. Yeah. So th that was definitely like a, a, a technical um, lesson that we learned. As a, as a business owner, I learned very quickly that people try to take advantage of you when you put out a service that is 100% intellectual property. I was very fortunate that my first experience as a business owner was with Robert, Ryan, and Grant because... They were always honest and open enough with everyone who asked who was in charge of the music. You know, the Wall Street Journal happened because they the 
the buzz about Charlie Bird as a as a space in New York City was great food, great wine, great service. Their music is out of this world. I've never heard a company put music on the on the front stage like that. And we did. We played it really loud when we realized that we wanted to play it loud. Yeah. The chef and Ryan Chef and Robert went back and repurposed the space to make it soundproof. Wow. You know, that wasn't something that they originally did when the bird opened, but it's something that they adapted and 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 did, right? The more we realized how we wanted to play music, they started bringing in sound technicians. Like they're paying people to figure out the acoustics of the space so that we get maximum volume without knocking down all of our Zaltos. Everything about us building Charlie Bird and Delicious was very parallel to how I built Audio Culture because they they were the blueprint for me. Wow. Um, and they also, and you know, kind of going back to that experience of being so disheartened by our by our industry until I got there, those were lessons that I actually kept with me as I started to represent myself um, within our industry in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, one of the best things that I learned is that there are people out there that will help you if you're smart enough or, or willing to let people help you. But at the same time, you have to be so guarded. Yeah, I've had meetings with hotel groups, restaurant groups, Zoom conferences, email chains, where all they really want to do is kind of pick my brain and figure out a way to exploit my approach to it without paying me for it. And especially here in New York, a lot of owners pride themselves on, um, on, on paying top dollar for the best details that are going to get them noticed by restaurateurs and foodies and, and influencers alike, right? So people go that extra mile for the Joe Malone candle in the bathroom, for the Aesop soap. The Margaret Braun. Yeah, for the yeah. Margaret Braun plates, yeah. for Zaltos. You know, right. we were also one of the first groups in the, in, the, in the city, if not the first group, outside of all those spaces himself that were using Zaltos for everything. You know, if you want music to be that relevant to your dining experience, you, you have to pay for it. And when you decide that you want music to be a part of your diner's experience, and you think that all the work that you have to put into it is to find a radio station on Spotify or Tidal or Pandora or whatever, pick it because of its genre, and then hit shuffle, you haven't done your due diligence. Yeah. And to me, if you're smart enough to get to the point where you're making those decisions, you need it, it. We've come to a point in time where people like me, or or or, or groups that want to feature music the way Delicious does, there has to be more thought and more consideration into how you're evolving that music program. Yeah, I mean, because it, it's worth a lot. It's it, there's there's a good value to it. For sure. So I, I guess that's like something you probably didn't take into account. It's probably something that like you pretty much probably underestimated coming with that because you have this group that's valuing you and giving you the monetary like compensation that you deserve. Then you go and there's other people who are recognizing you and you feel like, okay, that's I'm getting recognition, notoriety. There should be more of this, less of this. But yet you're getting a lot of this, not a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So is that like that's that sounds like to me, that sounds like it's getting kind of ugly. It's like everybody's just trying to like use and abuse so they can just make money. I'm not a DJ. I don't own a turntable. But I understand 
what it is to put music together like a DJ. So the hardest obstacle for me has always been to, is like, how do you try and explain to someone who's never cooked a day in their life how to make a dish? It's like your friend AJ said, you can teach them, you can show them, you can put it on paper. Yeah. But if their heart isn't in it, if they can't draw from life experience to understand what to do next when you're trying to figure out that equation, it's not going to necessarily resonate. You know? Yeah. And that is something that's super hard for me, even to this day, to have meetings with, with companies because, bro, the proof is in the pudding. Nowadays, humbly, I try not to sound like a dick, but if someone asks me about my approach to music and, and, and it's someone that is, it seems like they're approaching me for business, I politely refer them to my Linktree page. Because like you said, at this point, there's plenty of, of published content out there where I talk about my train of thought, right? So... I try and shield all of my like my deepest thoughts like these where I'm talking about why I approach music the way that I do. Yeah. Because there are people in the world that when they hear that, they'll try and come up with their own formula, right? Yeah. So I try and avoid those situations. And then I think what is most important to talk about in terms of how I've adapted um, with my company and the work that I do is in my recognition uh, into my responsibility in the representation of black culture. Right. And, you know, it's it's an elephant. It was an elephant in the room for me for a long time because I'm not black. Right. And to what point can you celebrate a culture before you're classified as appropriating it because you don't necessarily live that experience? Right. Right. Um, for me, it was super easy to love hip hop because of how I grew up, who I grew up with, where I grew up. Hip hop is New York. New York is hip-hop. It's not hard to fall in love with it and to let it resonate as a part of your life when you grow up here, right? right? Because hip-hop in its inception was all about the recognition and celebration of struggle. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about this city, we've struggled a lot. As great and as shiny as it is now, 70s, 80s, 90s, Nobody wanted to live here. I mean, here. bro, my mom, my mom's born and raised here. All I heard was stories. She was like, I'm, I'm in Virginia. I was like, you were playing going back? She's like, she's, all she knows is those experiences. Like, there's no, like, post-2012 Bushwick living. Like, that, that doesn't, that didn't exist. No. It was like, if you're on the sixth train at a certain time, this is going to happen. If you're out at a certain time, this is going to happen. Like, the city had its own rules and regulations that you had to follow within the confines to survive. And now it's just like, I feel, I feel like it's like. I'm here now, and it's like all oh, goody. I can go anywhere. Like no worries. It's like oh, I'm hearing stories about how it used to be. Used to not be able to do that. Used to be able to do this. Used to be able to. Do this. Used to. Used to. Used to. Used to. Used to. So like, the evolution of the city is just, just astounding to me. Like it's just amazing. Actually, a great time to probably take a small intermission, and we're gonna come back and actually talk about New York in its entirety and like how that features in your life. It's not just your career, man. It's your life, you know. And so we'll 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 touch base on that when we come back after these words from our our good old sponsors. So thank you. Be right back. The wine enjoyed on this episode was provided by Parcel Wine Shop, a curated wine shop and online retailer with nationwide shipping curated by a team of New York's finest sommeliers located at 511 West 38th Street in Hudson Yards, New York City. Subscribe to Parcel's Wine Drop, a new delivery service featuring three hand-selected bottles for $95 per month Parcel, wine for every scenario. The Hot Plates and Grace podcast was brought to you by Delicious Hospitality Group. 
The group that brought you Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, Legacy Records, Ada's Place, Easy Victor's Cafe, and a brand new restaurant that's coming soon. These are my favorite places in Manhattan where you can eat great food, drink fantastic wine, and listen to a fire curated playlist. Place an order today. Now back to the show. All right, and welcome back to the Hot Plates and Grace podcast. I'm Aaron Mays. I have my OG, Charlie Reyes of Audio Culture, LLC. We're here back talking about New York and how it features in your career. But since you were your thorough from, from the borough, well, let's just talk about how it features in your life, man. Like, I feel like that's more so of a thing. It's like we spoke the other day about how, you know, the inspiration of New York and you kind of touch base on how it's like the city itself is inspiration. Like, and I, I kind of want to ask more of like, yeah, there's that inspiration from the city. I feel it, too. But what about an opportunity specifically? And like anything like artworks or any projects throughout the city's entirety of your life being here that's influenced and kept you here as opposed to relocating and changing your life anywhere else? Um, when I think about New York and what it means to me, um, I think about pots and pans. Um, there are two experiences in my life that I consider myself blessed to have been a part of that are revolve around pots and pans. Um, in 2009, one of my very dear friends in life was a bartender at New York Steakhouse, which is the corporate steakhouse inside of the new Yankee Stadium. In 2009, the Yankees would go on to win the World Series. I was still living in Rhode Island at the time, for those of you who know me, the Yankees resonate with me on a very personal level, aside from sports fandom, because watching baseball games was how my grandmother and I bonded when I was a kid. So to kind of put these things together, in 2009, that that dear, dear friend of mine, um, Laura Rickles, uh, who still lives in the city today, shout out to Laura, love you, girl, um, <laughs> She had a regular who was visiting her. Anyway, dude, like we get to game six of the World Series, right? The Yankees are coming home. You can feel it. Like we almost won game five in Philly. I had told a bunch of friends, bro, we go home for game six. We're going to win it. And even if we don't win game six, game seven is ours. This is our fucking year, right? So I tell my friends, yo, I'm going home. I don't. I know I'm not gonna get a ticket. I, I'm not paying a thousand dollars for a fucking seat in the new stadium for this. But there's a magic to the neighborhood around Yankee Stadium, just like there is in any stadium in any city. That neighborhood resonates, right? There's there's an energy there. Right. So anyway, long story short, man, Laura pulls some improbable strings, and her regular gives her his ticket to give to me, and I get to go into Yankee Stadium for the sixth inning on on the night that we clinched the World Series. It was the first night that the boys had won a championship in the new stadium. It was a year after George Steinbrenner had died. There was a lot of emotion in winning that. I was in tears. I remember calling my grandma, barely being able to understand. We're both crying, screaming on the phone, right? And 
what I remember most about that night is when we finally got out into the streets in the Bronx. There were families hanging out of their windows, banging pots and spoons, screaming, celebrating, being together, being a community. For that moment, all of those people, white, black, brown, yellow, Bronx, Queens, Manhattan, if you bled pinstripes, there was, there was a love, there was a unity, right? And New York City, in its best moments, powers through because of situations like those, right? Yeah. So that moment became that much more relevant to me when I experienced it for the second time in a completely different environment, right? When George Floyd died, my life changed. Um, while I've always been conscious and intelligent enough to understand that there's a significant difference in the way that you and I are treated versus the way that white folk are treated, specifically by cops. While I was always understanding of that, I was never proactive in calling it out. It's a, it's a regret I'm going to have for the rest of my life, right? But this is a moment for people like me to be better, yeah. to do better, to be a better representation of, of our cultures, of our people, to hold our people and others accountable, right? I felt compelled to do something, you know? I called friends, brothers in life. Yo, I can't sit here and do nothing. Right. I have to do something. Yeah. I'm a two-time felon. No, I'm not ashamed to admit that. You Google my name. I have a criminal record. To pro Every time I step out into the streets now to protest, I put my life in danger. I've been with you on that. But, yeah. I, but I do it because I understand the importance of, of what we're trying to communicate as a message, right? When we started to march, especially more towards the beginning, when there were thousands of people in the street, we started to walk through neighborhoods in Manhattan and there were families hanging out of their windows, brown, black, yellow, white, kids, grandparents, cheering on protesters, banging on pots and pans, right? And initially... The experiences didn't connect in my head, even on an auditory level, right? But now when I think about it, those are two completely different examples of a city that is so diverse coming together. One was for celebration. Another, obviously, was for protest and for pain, right? But the thing about this city and why it's so important in my life is because as a lifelong New Yorker, I've experienced things like that. New York has always had soul, even when no one else recognized it. New York has always been comfortable within its own skin as, as a place, as, as a destination, right? We've been doing things that make us comfortable within ourselves forever, and it's always been coincidence that the rest of the world takes it and makes it culture right we we've always been doing our own thing right yeah um and i say we because i'm born and raised here yeah. i'm 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 a unicorn in hospitality more often than not get together with your co-workers and ask everyone where they're from 90 percent of your people are going to say that they're from brooklyn right 
But you ask him again, no, where are you really from, bro? Oh, I'm from Indiana. <laughs> I'm from Washington. From Milwaukee. I'm from Arizona. Yeah. I'm from Florida. I'm, yeah. I'm from Jersey. I'm from Virginia. You know. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I'm from New York, but like yeah. you know, I, I grew up. I grew up in Westchester. I, I I grew up upstate. So you're not Long from Island. Brooklyn. Yeah. Right. And and you know, not to be not to be not to sound like a true New York elitist, um, but the longer you're here, the more that you realize that all of the shine that New York gives off to the rest of the world is only empowered and held up by the soul and the substance of all of those neighborhoods that we talked about earlier, right? So, you know, I'm definitely voting for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, but she didn't start that trend with Tim's. She probably caught that trend because we were doing it here in New York 25 years ago. Yeah, because she's worked in the tri-state area and operated, so that... But, she, but she's also cognizant of the culture, right? Yeah. Hip-hop culture at this at this stage in the game is permeated into American culture, and we've yeah. talked about that in numerous examples throughout this interview so far, you know, and and that's and that's always going to continue to happen. And when and when you're from here, and when you identify as a New Yorker, you understand that true prosperity comes from bouncing back. New York is pop is notorious for that, you know, every every facet of our city, every all of the cultures here that have been put down have thrived. I mean, look at black folk. They took away New Amsterdam and built Central Park. They moved to Harlem and made Harlem the beautiful thing that it, that it was. We'll always be setting trends even when we're not trying to. Um, I don't know if you caught this recently, but the newest thing that's been appropriated from New York City culture that blows my mind is um, someone posted a picture of one of those um, uh, display-free sample tables at Whole Foods, and they were serving chopped cheese. That's, um, that's not an exaggeration. That's not a lie. Um, Whole Foods now is gourmeting up chopped cheeses, right? The uh, same thing in D.C. You know m mumbo sauce? No, I don't. But see, but that's my point. It's like, But the high-end restaurants are making mumbo sauce to be served on fine dining plates when it came – it originated in Chinese takeout spots. Well, that's the beauty of it, though, and that kind of goes back to what I was you know, saying, kind of rounding out this, this response is, is like, you know, one of, one of my heroes in, in hospitality is David Chang, you know? Um, son of an immigrant, son of immigrant parents, never really comfortable in either either society. You know, when you're when you're first generation American, you're too American for your for your for the for your family that's still part of that culture, and you're not American enough for Americans. So so it's kind of how I feel being being not as not as dark. I'm not I'm black, but I'm not black enough. The thing about New York is, and and you know, talking about David Chang is his, his philosophy of ugly delicious, right? His his TV show talks about it. In his in his autobiography, he's talking about it. Nine times out of ten, for something to be passable in in or accepted by American society, it's got to be whitewashed, right? Um, it's got to, and I'm not, I don't not, uh, it's it's got to be repackaged and presented in a play, in a way that's shiny. And unfortunately, nine times out of ten, it's it has to go through that process to be recognized. And one of the things I love about this city is that it's. It's it's even when it's even when it's been a platform for those things to take place, the soul of the city is always in those neighborhoods that we talked about. Right. You know, 100 percent. So you touched on a bit of hospitality. Does the New York hospitality scene have more of a drawing factor compared to other cities? You have experience upstate. You have experience in Rhode Island. 
not so much the rest of the world, but do you still think that the ex expertise, the diversity of cuisines, and the style of service sets it aside from everywhere else in the world? In terms of the experience you can get, I'm going to 100% say no. Um, and I'm going to say that on the strength of what I said to you earlier. I wholeheartedly believe that, you know, it's the roll of the dice, obviously, when you sit at a table, you never know who's going to serve you. But I don't think that people who are built like me that put all of themselves into their jobs are exclusively living in New York. There are definitely people around the entire world that put as much, if not more, into serving those tables, regardless of who's sitting at them, right? It's a great take, yeah. So it's not about the city that we live in. It's more of about who we are as a person. Do I think that New York, as an environment, allows us to grow organically within our profession? Absolutely. I absolutely do. Um, but, you know, to kind of build off of that, and obviously not to take anything away from my city because this is my home, a lot of major cities with urban centers, because of the probability of all of those cultures intermingling, there's more of an opportunity to grow, right? Yeah. So the more, so it becomes a matter of how much, you know, in terms of my personal experience, I know that the day is going to come that I'm going to travel somewhere indistinct. It's going to be a little like mom and pop shop somewhere in like, you know, a little town in Paris that I never heard of or a village in Italy that I've never heard of or, you know, some of the, dude, when I traveled to Ecuador, some of the best dining experiences I ever had really? in terms of quality of food and just overall niceness was in my home country, mm. you know, because people there are not full of themselves. And, you know, it's a pro and a con because when you, when you live in an experience and when you live and experience a city like New York, right, you're always going to, you, you can always have a great experience, but you can always also be robbed of an experience because if you get someone who's taking care of you that is too full of themselves, mm -hmm. that thinks that they're better than you because they know something about the menu that you don't, that shit's transparent, you know? As a New Yorker, I, I confidently say that we have a bullshit meter that's really hard to, to overcome. And then, you know, I, I, I play into the... Um, I play into the stereotypes that people perceive of me when I sit down. At 40 years old, I choose to dress this way and act this way because it's a trigger. You know, people classify me without knowing me. They have no idea when they see my Air Force Ones and my tattoos that I am a level two Psalm, right? Yeah. And I love to displace that. But why Why? Why need to look like a level two Psalm to be a level two Psalm? Well, that's my point. You know, exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know, so kind of rounding out your, your question, I don't I don't think it's 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 the city that makes the, the experience the most memorable. I think the environment will definitely influence the opportunity to make it more memorable. But ultimately, it comes down to the space that you're in, the people that are serving you, and how much they care about your experience. And you can't quantify those things specifically on where you are in the world. That's about who you are. Yeah, I've, lot, had, yeah. I've, had, I've had friends who have taken the time to teach me that confidence is exponentially more accepted when it comes from a place of humility yeah, and as oxymoron as of a statement as that, that can be, it's 100% true. You can know yourself without telling me well, well, I, about I, everything I, about I, yourself. I say you know that, I, mean? I yeah. say that to, to, to sum up the fact that depending on what we're talking about, um, in terms of the relevance of New York city as a space, my opinion will change. Right. But when we're talking about, hospitality experiences and 
sitting down at a table and being like, wow, right? It's not about New York exclusively. The probability is there, you know. Um, statistically, if you come here to visit and to eat and you're from a small town like in the Midwest, the opportunity to have grand meals or crazy experiences, to drink something you've never drank or to taste something you've never eaten, yeah, the probability is there. But if the waiter or the bartender or the space that you go to is complete shit, none of those things are going to matter, right? You could be sitting at the last supper table with God, but if that waiter... Jesus himself. But if that waiter is shit, fuck who, does it matter? Who was the waiter on the last supper? I wonder when... No- <laughs> I want to know what he did after that. Hopefully it wasn't. He's like, yo, mom, yo, Jesus came in, like 12 of his homies do. Like, Didn't even tip. (laughs) We gave him water and he kept turning into wine. He gave me two loaves of bread and a fish. And I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? I got bills to pay, Jesus. (laughs) Speaking of experience, like, I got to hear the story. You already gave me a good dining experience. I got to hear, like, in the city, best experience you and the homies out there cutting it up. If you got one for me, scroll scroll to the bank, man. There have been a lot, man. I mean, honestly, dude, to be completely honest, I've lived a very blessed life in the very short time that I've been a New York hospitality professional. Um, being with the people that I've been in, the spaces that I've been, I've considered myself super, super lucky. And, you know, this is... I think back and of all of the great meals, dining room experiences that I've had, you know, great cocktails, great night out, great night, great nights out with my friends, with family, with dates, with girls, whatever. Honestly, dude, what I miss the most and what still resonates in my head is my time at Sunny's. Um, for those of for those folks who are listening and not familiar, um, there is a bar here in New York City called Goodnight Sunny's. Um, and it kind of opened around the same time that Charlie Bird did, uh, 2013, 2014, somewhere in that window. The, the, the lovely lady who I was dating at the time, that was her regular bar. And when we started dating, she took me there and I became fast friends with the head bartender and with one of the owners. And I spent a lot of nights there since in the last seven years, um, I I the last time that I was there obviously was before quarantine. And all those nights, man, just hanging with my friends um in an honest, safe space where I was able to be myself. Um obviously, my experience was a little bit more subjective because I don't I rarely have to wait for a drink or a seat. Um I get full autonomy on the music like who can walk into a bar in New York City and take over the playlist? Not a single person. Like, you know, literally not one unless, unless you own it. Unless you're paying for the jukebox, you know? Yeah, but, right. And the cool thing is, man, is like, it's not just me, right? Because Pete and Andy, they, they let everybody who works there, or if you're family, if they call you family, you got access. And the thing is, is like, I started going there when it was, it was cool, right? That bar's notorious now. Yeah. In a good way, right? Right, right. And I mentioned it to people. They're like, oh, shit, yeah, hell yeah. And so so here's the thing, right? On top of the fact that I sh- they showed me love and treat me like family when they didn't have to, they turned around and they did that with everybody that has ever mentioned my name there, right? For as popular as they are, for as powerful as they are in this industry as a, as a group, yeah, they're not full of themselves. 
Pete is one of the most humble, down-to-earth people I've ever met. He's not pretentious, loves to have a good time. Bro, I've seen him work his own bar, right? And when people ask him, who who are you? He's like, I'm just a bartender here. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's that humility, that openness that they share there with everyone. Like, bro, I've had family members. I've had cousins take take my aunts there. And the second that they find out that that's family, that's New York yeah. for me. Yeah. That's the most New York thing for me. That's the New York experience that always resonates for me. New Yorkers, as as standoffish and as aggressive as we come off, we're actually a very open and giving community. And the more that you expose yourself to that community and give to it, it gives back. Yeah. It gives back, man. Yeah. You know? That was my ethos when I first moved here. I was like, I'm going to show love to the streets first, and then I may get what I want. Like, if I don't show love and, like, show appreciation for the city that I'm in, if I come here like, oh, I'm complaining about this, that, and the other, I didn't make this. I'm not from here. I got to – if I'm here, if I'm choosing to move into your culture and your society, I got to adapt. Show love to the streets. Do, show love. See people in the neighborhood talk to me, I talk to them back. Random person pulls me aside in Crown Heights, I just talk to them because that's, that's – I'm living with them technically. They don't live with me. I live with them. Because like anything else in the world, if you if you give too much attention – to the surface of it, if you treat it like a plant and you only water the leaves and you forget about the root, the plant's going to die. And you can't ever forget that. Because that shit is parallel for like a lot of things that have to do with everyone's life, personally yeah. and professionally. Speaking of that, like we've touched a, like a lot on like who you are as a person, your ethos, your mindset, your approach. So like, just summarize it up. Like, give me a, like two, two lines or something like, like that really speaks to who Charlie Reyes is in the hospitality industry. Um, honestly, man, I'm just, I'm just a guy that got lucky. And before I completely retire, I'm trying to be, give someone an opportunity that makes them feel the same way. Because, you know, I don't have to go, you know, we've talked a lot about it extensively, all of the opportunities that I got. Um, and I had a lot more than those, but I fucked up a lot of them. Because I was young, impetuous, reckless, stubborn, hard-headed, whatever, you know. But now, trying to be as perceptive as I can be when I look at myself and in my life, I think about, like I said earlier, I've had the best opportunities I was ever given were given to me by women or by minorities in this industry. Same. Aside, aside from Robert, Ryan, and Grant, those were the only three white guys that I can remember initially that never tried to screw me over. And I'm not trying to sit here and, you know, paint a picture of being a victim of racism. Like, we all go through it, right? But that's what always resonates with me. I got super lucky. My own, my own people gave me a chance when no one else would. And the only thing I would build up off that is if I'm ever in a position where I can give someone an opportunity that they deserve, even if they don't have the qualifications for it, I'm going to give it to them. Right. You hire the character rather than the experience. Yeah. That's, that's a mindset a lot of most successful restaurants should operate off of. I know for a fact when I got brought on, Peter Ander asked me why restaurants. He saw I was in ice. He saw I, you know, I obviously wanted to be a culinary dude, but like on paper, 
it didn't show that I wanted to be because my experience didn't show stuff. So he asked me why. And I told him, I was like, man, I just, I just really enjoy it. It's like I step in and I know for a fact I can be effective. I know for a fact I'm bringing a certain energy to the table. I know I can learn. I know I could do this, that, and the other. And I got lucky. And next thing you know, here we are. Boom. Without that interview, without Peter Ender asking me why hospitality, why restaurants, he literally explained to me, he's like, this is a failing industry. Like, this isn't really profitable. Why? Like, that question right there, as, as easy and as simple as it was, the way you answer that tells him a lot. Yeah. About where your head is at and what you really want. Yeah. And you've given him all that without him really, without you realizing how much he's really dug into your your train yeah. of thought. The thing is, like, I responded so fast. I wasn't just like, um. And that's how he knew. Duh. Well, I was just like, I fucking love this shit, man. Like, I can tell you the day I fell in love with. It. I can tell you the day it happened. I can I can literally explain all these moments. It, it went down to that. When so, I, when I got hired for Charlie Bird, man, I I still laugh to this day because when I talked to Shin about it. Shin, Shin tells me that she hired me 10 minutes into our interview in her head, right? Bro, but you here's the thing, it, yeah. right? Like, I was so used to not getting an opportunity from anyone that in my own head, I was defeated. Yeah. I, I defeated myself. Yeah. I told myself walking into that interview, I'm not getting the job. Look at this place. It's so pretty. It's in a nice neighborhood. I've never seen glasses like that before. They're not going to hire me. And... The end. The interview wraps up, and like we, we were talking for like an hour, dude. At the first job interview, and she 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 drives the conversation to a point where she's like, "All right, Charlie." She's like, "Do you have any other questions?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, you know, um, I know you're going through the interview process. When uh, when are, when will I know? When will I know if I got hired?" She's like, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry. In my head, I hired you an hour ago." She's like, "You, you we're gonna have you start next week." <laughs> she's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. You you've already been hired. Whoops. <laughs> sorry, I didn't tell you that." That's who I want to be. Right. I want to be someone that creates – if I don't create a niche for what I do in terms of music, I want to put myself in a position where I can open doors up for other people. Right. I got you. So where, where do you see your career going from here? With the revitalization of the music program through Charlie Bird and Pasquale, where's, what's next? Um, honestly, man, I, I, I have to be one of those people that, that, has, that is going to sit and wait to see how the world settles. Um, like we talked before, my personal preference to bartend is the social interaction. It's what I enjoy most. Bartenders at this moment are not allowed to do that in the city. You know, we're basically going in to be a service bartender, and that just doesn't speak to me. So until we get some sort of confirmation from our leaders about a vaccine or how the world's going to reset, I can't really speak to what I'm going to do in our profession. I don't, I don't have any ambition to rejoin a floor, to be a captain anywhere. When I weigh whether or not I want to be into the street, aside of leaving my house for a bag of weed, I don't want to leave, right? Yeah. I don't see myself being in a space where I'm taking care of guests, and the first time somebody walks, like some first time somebody's at one of my tables and a protest walks by, and they say something about those protesters, my job there is over, right? If for some reason I'm waiting a table and they wear a mask that says MAGA on it, my job is over because I feel so passionate about the things that are wrong in this world right now that I can't fake being hospitable, right? When we clock in as hospitality professionals, if our dog died that day, we have to check that shit at the door. That's the, that's the sign of a hospitality professional. The world is burning down around you, but it's your job to paint, paint butterflies if that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I can't do that right now. Right. So as far as me working... In our industry, I can't see myself doing it. 
My hope is that, you know, there are businesses that are reopening that see the importance of music, especially now in a space where, you know, it's amplified because there are less people with voices drowning it out. And at the same time, I hope that they can figure out that these, these are services that need to get paid for, you know. Conversely, I'm making it a mission to call, call out companies that are appropriating hip-hop culture and not paying it forward. One of the things that makes me most comfortable about working with Delicious Hospitality again um, at this point in my life and at this point in the world climate is their genuine efforts to sympathize and support their BIPOC employees. Mm -hmm. For me, that's become a very big deal in the way that I do business as audio culture. Yeah, we had a really... Really good conversation about that, like a couple months ago, when we were yeah. speaking on how some of our people, you know, tread, walk lightly, tread lightly, you know, but select a good group. Yeah, and I feel like I've connected myself. Here's, with a good here's the group thing, man. As, as as the world reopens, as we start to hold, because it's a bigger shakeup that's going on in our industry. Right, not to talk too long about it, but with what's going on with the BLM movement, the the spotlight on inequality has been amplified within the hospitality industry. People are speaking out about being taken advantage of strictly on this on their skin color um on their mis the misrepresentation of who they are right here in new york city for better or worse delicious hospitality when i was a part of it and now where i'm working with them as audio culture um we put out a culture in our dining room that is very pro-black because we celebrate hip-hop culture right um and if we're gonna do that we, we're gonna always run the risk of being called out by someone that doesn't see the genuine attempt to compete well and what we're doing. Well here's the thing, man. P. Wells can't speak about hip hop culture. P. Wells might be able to speak about um what he sees in dining rooms and what he perceives as, you know, the flow of a dining room to be. But I mean I, I'll speak on that because I don't work for the company anymore. When he called legacy out for appropriation of culture, he he was doing so with a black woman sitting next to him and while she was celebrating the portrait that was on the wall where another black woman was celebrating black music, he didn't understand it, right? So that's a, a small example of what goes on on a bigger scale in this city. Uh, the people, people who create this culture are in a place in the world right now where they need to be, where they need to feel respected and appreciated more than ever, right? So moving forward... I want to work with companies that are comfortable to amplify that, but be there in the bad times as well. Yeah, and thoughtfully so, and genuinely so, totally. But now's the time I want to give to you. Have the floor, plug in any projects you're doing, anybody you're supporting, your own handle, just anything that's on your mind right now, now you have the floor. Um, I'm actually going to take the moment not to promote myself or anything that I'm doing, but to promote a lot of people that are out there doing things that in my opinion, are a lot more relevant than anything I might be doing right now. Uh, at this point, like if you want to follow me and any of my crazy opinions or just info what I'm doing with music, you can feel free to follow me on Instagram. I really more often than not operate out of that social platform at uh, I am Audio Culture, um, and it's uh, spelled E-Y-E-A-M, Audio Culture. Uh, but more importantly than that, um, while I would never classify myself as a you know, a very proactive, involved activist. I've definitely become, for lack of a better term, woke with what's going on in the world, and I need to use my platform to amplify those people that are out there doing real work, right? So here in New York City, if you have any interest 
in helping people that are in, that are in need right now of you know any type of support, emotional, financial, uh, food, you know, donate to the food bank. Um, there are a couple places that I've become involved with. Uh, I helped organize a fundraiser for a group called Soul Food uh, Soul Fire Farm. Um, they are basically a collective out of Brooklyn looking to um, reclaim and and re-educate on you know food systems and farming uh, within our cultures. Uh, and I've also attended a handful of rallies and protests around the city that more often than not are led by two groups that I'd like to talk about really quickly. Um, the first is New York City Action Lab. Uh, the second is Warriors in the Garden. Both of those groups have been at the forefront of you know leading a lot of what's going on in the city in terms of speaking out about BLM. Um, and they've helped educate me to a lot, not just about what's going on in our city, but what's going on within our country and within our culture. So definitely, if you guys have any interest in any of those things at all, please seek those organizations out and help them out however you can. Much love, yeah. Hell yeah. So Charlie, my man, this has been a wonderful interview, man. Like, I was looking forward to this. Like, even when we first got this launched, it's like you were my number one guy to get on because of how much I find music important to the industry and how much it's helped me, even with being at Legacy and how I grew as a server. Having that music played... I felt like I belonged in the industry. So it was really great having you on and giving your take on how you're doubling down on what I thought and how important it is. And if you do have it, you know, make sure it's you're not appropriate. Make sure you're reciprocating in the proper way so everybody's being respected. You're not just trying to make a dollar. So, man, I'm so thankful for you to join me. I really appreciate you Thank coming you, out. Thank you, man. It was really great. I was very happy to be here. For sure, man. So if you could just lead us in the toast, my man. Raise my glass to oh, you. Oh, sure. Um, Excuse me. So I had to think a lot about this because it's like I don't a lot of toast that I was familiar with were super, super silly or stupid. One of my childhood heroes um, uh, was Razor Ramon, right? Professional wrestler. This guy named Scott Hall. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan, even to this day. Um, and when he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame a couple years ago, he did a whole speech on his life and reflected on it. Phenomenal athlete, had, like whatever. So here's my thing, right? Here's here's his toast. He ended his. Well, I used to explain. Let me top. Let me top off the glass. <laughs> Excuse me. He ended his. Uh, he ended his speech by saying the following, and it really resonates um, with who I perceive myself to be, but also with who I want to be, right, for the rest of my life. And the toast goes like this. He says, um, he says, hard work pays off. Uh, dreams come true. Mm. Bad times don't last. But bad guys do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lit. Cheers, man. And obviously that resonates because if you know anything about pro wrestling, Razor Bullet Ramon call, was man. the bad guy. Yeah. Which is why he used to call himself the bad guy. So, you know, he's saying that, you know, bad times don't last, but we do when we work hard and when we dream, you know? Okay. I'm, I'm fully behind it. Shit. I'm a bad guy now, too. <laughs> All right, man, you know the way how we close everything out. Yeah. You know, like I see, we did the three, two, one clap to symbolize the meeting's over. We're going into the night. If the clap was right, the vibe was right. If the clap was wrong, let's do it again because we're not going to have a fucked up night because you can't count to three. I used to proactively find a way to either go into the kitchen or, you know, be on my break when we were doing this. Yeah. Because I, I, was, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't against the pre-shift. I was always against the clap, but oh my God. I will acquiesce. <laughs> well, I appreciate you giving me... The uh, the one time courtesy, <laughs> my man. Much love. Right. I appreciate All right. that. All right, take so us go ahead. take us out, Charlie. Right, three, ready? two, one. Three, two, one.
Thank you for listening to the Hot Plates and Grapes podcast, the podcast made for those on the grind in the hospitality industry. Be sure to follow us on Instagram for more content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you're on the go, you can find us on platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and Anchor FM. Stay tuned for new episodes every other Tuesday at 7 p.m.